Chapter 3. A Wretch Like Who Living Pardoned You are a serial killer. The memories of your gruesome deeds still haunt you when you try to sleep at night. You've been on trial, convicted, and given the death sentence. You will spend the remaining months of your life in solitary confinement. Living in a pitch-black cell the size of a small closet, a jailer will toss stale bread to you once a day as you hopelessly await your day to die. You sleep on a cold cement floor and go to the bathroom in a hole. You are getting what you deserve, and justice is being served. After weeks without seeing another human face or even a beam of light, your prison door opens and the brilliant light from the hallway's fluorescent bulbs blasts into your dungeon. Your eyes take a moment to adjust to the brightness as you strain to make out the human figure standing in your doorway. It's a familiar face. It's the judge from your trial. This innocent, holy judge named Jesus Christ extends his hand to you. He tells you he will take your punishment. He is the judge, the only one in authority who can pull this off and make it count. He will die in your place. He will forgive all the crimes you've committed. You can walk away a free man. You know you don't deserve this amazing offer, but you can't help but accept it. Jesus dies. You live. The guards lead you to the prison entrance and release you. You have been pardoned. The sun shines down on you as you take your first crisp breath of air as a free man, a long, deep breath. You ponder over and over the depth of love Jesus showed you by paying for your freedom with his own life. You can taste it. You didn't deserve freedom, and Jesus didn't deserve death. How do you feel? More importantly, how will you live? What will you appreciate? What will you feel entitled to? The truth is, if we learn to live as pardoned rather than entitled, it would revolutionize our faith, our prayers, and our lives as married or single men. When you've been pardoned the way this hypothetical prisoner was from his dark cell, you would never feel entitlement again. It would be all consumed by relief and gratitude. The journey we are on in this book is not about how you can manipulate your wife to do what will make you happy, nor will it lead you to perform the magical act of good that will finally make God transform your marriage into utopia. Have you ever thought any of the following things? I married the wrong person. I should have married fill in the blank. I should have pursued fill in the blank. Why isn't my wife more like fill in the blank? My wife isn't as pretty as fill in the blank. Or my wife isn't as fill in the blank as fill in the blank. I bet I could have gotten slash could get fill in the blank. 
On a scale of 1 to 10, I'm a 7. My wife is a 7. That guy's a 5. And he's with a 9. You're telling me I could have married a 9? I got married too young. I got married for the wrong reasons. My wife is a different person than the woman I dated. My wife and I have nothing in common. My wife won't speak my love language. My wife won't meet my needs. My wife won't fulfill me sexually. My wife won't give me recreational companionship. My wife isn't staying physically attractive for me. My wife isn't providing domestic support for me. My wife doesn't admire me, as other women do. Footnote. This and the previous four in the list are the, quote, five needs a man has, according to Willard Harley's His Needs, Her Needs, Building an Affair-Proof Marriage, Grand Rapids, Michigan, Revell, 2011. End of footnote. If you have ever indulged in any of these thoughts, and if you haven't, you're either lying or you've only been married a week. It's an indication of entitlement. This journey is about realizing we don't deserve anything. As we live pardoned, we quit seeing who our wife isn't and who some other woman is. We start seeing our wife as the complete woman she is, the blessing she is, and the undeserved gift of mercy she is. Are you living entitled or living pardoned? From entitlement to appreciation. Your wife will never be able to compete with the women you compare her to. No human could. There's simply too much competition. Throngs of real women look for attention, and throngs of electronic female images vie for your mouse click. Your wife is only human. Your fantasies are not. You know every flaw your wife has, whereas you see other women on a surface level. You see your wife on her worst days. You smell her breath when you wake up in the morning, and she smells yours. Your wife can't compare to the flirtatious snapshots that tempt you. You will always be able to find something your wife lacks that someone else seems to offer you. Instead of focusing on what we don't have, the premise of love bank marriage strategies, living pardoned focuses on what we do have and how we don't deserve these things. Living pardoned makes me realize that when the classic hymn begins, amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like blank. The name that goes in the blank is my own, not my wife's. Living entitled means treating my wife as if she's the wretch in need of an overhaul. Living pardon realizes that I am the wretch and that no earthly overhaul can cure me, that the only cure for me is the mercy of Jesus. I am a shattered vessel that his grace has made whole. Such a thought makes me bury my face in my hands while simultaneously lifting them in praise as far as they will reach. In the way of the heart, Henry Nouwen quotes the sayings of the Desert Fathers. It is folly for a man who has a dead person in his house to leave him there and go to weep over his neighbor's dead. 
Solitude leads to the awareness of the dead person in our own house and keeps us from making judgments about other people's sins. In this way, real forgiveness becomes possible. Unquote. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. The dead person in my house, my wretched sin, is plenty for me to concern myself with and to bring before the Lord. It makes no sense for me to cast judgment on others when I'm guilty of the same. In fact, we can't truly begin to forgive others until we realize that we're in the same boat. My wife is no longer insufficient for, quote, a stud like me, the way we think of ourselves when living entitled. She is now a gift for a wretch like me, a gift I don't deserve. Even with all her flaws and all I want to change, she is a gift I don't deserve. You have been pardoned. The sun shines down on you as you take your first crisp breath of air as a free man. A long, deep breath. How do you feel? More importantly, how will you live? How will you live as a husband? Stop paying attention to what your wife doesn't do. Stop keeping track of your love tank or love bank. You and I are insecure, bankrupt, helpless sinners whose love needs will never be filled by another human being. To think our wives could do this for us is the definition of idolatry. It's the most unfair position we can put them in. So it's time to stop keeping score. One of the most dangerous prayers you can pray is, quote, God, give me what I deserve, unquote. Thank God that he doesn't keep score. We would all be in serious trouble if he did. Our side of the scoreboard would read negative infinity. But God doesn't keep score. Thus, you have no right to keep score either. Pay attention to what your wife does do. Pay attention to who she is. Appreciate her. At the very least, you can appreciate your wife for the, quote, glue of grace she is in your life. The glue God has given you to keep together so much that you hold valuable. Don't get me wrong. I'm not asking you to try to trick yourself. That misses the point of drawing on the power of the gospel to satisfy and fuel us. But appreciating your wife because of what Jesus has done for you is very different from appreciating your wife because of what she has done for you. The key to being grateful and living in the freedom Jesus offers is not to try to fool ourselves into being thankful for qualities your wife doesn't actually have. While most husbands can think of at least a few reasons to be grateful for their wives, and that thought exercise is helpful to a degree, it is not the solution. It's not the solution because some men have been so burned, hurt, and rejected by their wives that they truly don't feel they have anything to be thankful for. Footnote. 
This may not be your experience. Praise God for that. But don't judge the men who have had this experience or think that everyone has the potential to experience what you do in your marriage. End of footnote. To force yourself to make a list of your wife's positive attributes and let those attributes carry you through your marriage's weak seasons is to fall back into the entitlement, kickback love mentality. That mentality is simply not strong enough to uphold you through the dry and difficult seasons. What we need to understand in the depths of our being and what will truly transform us through the thick and thin of life and marriage is that Jesus has done more than enough for us to be thankful for. Jesus fills our love tank to the brim, to overflowing, and nothing can change that. We have a choice. We can fuel ourselves from his full cup, or we can look for a cheap substitute elsewhere. Your wife is not a gift because of who your wife is. She's just as messed up as you are, after all. She's a gift because of who Jesus is, because you deserve hell, but Jesus has given you grace and life instead. Be grateful. Show your gratitude. You do not deserve her. She is a gift. Forgive or else. I have read Jesus' parable of the unmerciful servant countless times. In this story, Jesus tells of a servant who owed his king 200,000 years worth of wages, a cartoonish debt the servant obviously would never be able to pay. The law dictated that the man and his entire family would be sold as slaves to pay the debt owed to the king. The servant begged and pleaded for the king to forgive his astronomical debt. And the king mercifully agreed. The man was free to go, pardoned. On his way out, the man ran into a fellow servant who owed him around a hundred days worth of wages. While not a negligible amount, it was certainly nowhere near the incalculable amount he himself had just been forgiven of. To be precise, the debt owed him was 0.0005% of what he had just been forgiven of. Shockingly, the just forgiven servant started to violently choke his peer and demand that the debtor repay all he owed. When the second servant asked for patience and reassured the first servant he would pay back his debt in time, the wicked servant refused to show mercy. Instead, he had the man thrown into prison until he could pay back all he owed. The conclusion of Jesus' parable recently hit me with sobering rawness. Quote, Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant, just as I had mercy on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured, until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Matthew 18, 33-35 Over the countless times I've read this passage in the past, I've automatically found theological and contextual ways to soften Jesus' last point. My motives were pure, of course, I mean, taken on its own, This verse indicates we could lose our salvations if we don't forgive others. 
It could indicate legalism and the need to earn our salvations. It would mean we'd have to walk around in fear of God's judgment, never knowing if we had forgiven enough. All things clearly explained in other parts of Scripture. So I would preach the story while avoiding Jesus' final point. It's true we shouldn't develop our theology around one verse when multitudes of other verses on the same topic have contrasting emphases. It's true the Bible doesn't contradict itself, and one verse doesn't negate a bunch of others. But by the same token, it's also true we can't dismiss or dodge a verse because it jars us. We can't ignore two very intentional points Jesus was making here. Forgiving others is not optional for those whom God has forgiven. And lack of forgiveness is punishable by eternity in hell. As it turns out, my motives for dodging the punch of this passage weren't so pure after all. The Holy Spirit hit me loud and clear. The reason you don't want to believe verse 35 to its fullest extent is because you don't want to forgive your wife. Ouch. While I don't think it's possible to overemphasize God's grace towards us, I do think it's possible to cheapen it. Footnote. The term cheap grace was first coined by Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his 1937 publication, The Cost of Discipleship. In this work, Bonhoeffer describes cheap grace as, quote, the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ. End of footnote. We cheapen his grace when we de-emphasize God's holiness and justice. When we tell ourselves we don't really need to fear God. By fear, I don't mean be afraid of God. I mean the biblical fear of God, referenced hundreds of times throughout Scripture. Fear is the natural feeling a sinful being has in the presence of a holy God. Fear is an understanding of who God is and who we are apart from him. It is knowing we have incurred an unpayable debt that must be paid. It is awe, reverence, and humility taken to their utmost state. Modern Christians need major re-posturing as sinners before a holy God. We've been conditioned to think grace is cheap and we aren't so bad. We think talking about hell or God's wrath is only for the radical kooks, not for cool and hip Christians like us. This mindset is as unbiblical as it gets. Footnote. Instead of trying to explain away the directness of God's wrath in the Old Testament, we need to realize wrath is what sinners deserve before a holy God. Anything less, and God is no longer holy or just. How arrogant we are to think we can stand before a holy God and not deserve his wrath, or that he is unjust in bringing it upon the earth. End of footnote. And it has devastating effects on our ability to allow God's grace to transform us. If we don't grasp God's justice and holiness and how far apart from him we truly are, we'll never be able to fully enjoy the depths of his grace. If we think we've only done a nickel's worth of sin, or God only cares a nickel's worth about our sin, it's no wonder the nickel's worth of grace we accept doesn't change anything about the way we live. When we realize we've done 
200,000 years of salary in sin, the equivalent amount of grace needed to compensate for this cannot help but reposture us. We are repostured from being arrogant, entitled self-gods who think we can look Yahweh in the eye to being weak human beings overwhelmed by a tidal wave of grace, flattened like pancakes on our face before an untouchable, holy God. Footnote. YHWH are the Hebrew letters used for God's name in the original manuscripts of the Old Testament. God was so holy to the Jews, they would not even audibly pronounce his name. We can only make educated guesses on how to pronounce YHWH, but some translate it to Yahweh. End of footnote. When this is our life posture, God's grace and mercy will free and transform us in miraculous ways. Here's the point that will change your marriage forever, as it has changed mine. God can send you to hell if you don't continually forgive your wife. Does this scare you? It probably does, and we need to stop immediately labeling that as a bad thing. But that's not the point. And it's essential we don't miss the point here. Jesus' point is not to scare you. His point is to get you to forgive. Think a little about this parable. How in the world did this servant rack up 200,000 years worth of debt? We all know people who are bad with money and who make foolish financial decisions. But 200,000 years worth of salary in debt? Footnote. We're talking roughly $5 billion in today's currency. End of footnote. And he caused it himself. It's unimaginable what kind of wreck this type of person must be. But that wreck is also you and me. We, of course, are the wicked servant in the parable. We caused our uncountable debt with our uncountable sins. And we struggle to forgive our wives because we forget what big wrecks we are before God and how ridiculous it is that he forgave our own debts. For us to fail to forgive our wives continually, no matter what they do to us or deprive us of, is enough to punch our tickets straight to hell. Footnote. Please pay attention. I'm not saying you're going to hell if you don't forgive your wife. I'm saying that not forgiving your wife is enough sin for God to send you to hell. Arguing that, quote, Jesus's grace covers me so I'm good, unquote, completely dodges the point Jesus is making here about forgiveness and about God's holiness. End of footnote. If that doesn't motivate you to forgive, I'm not sure what will. To appropriate this in the practical sense, don't focus on the amount of debt your wife owes you. Don't focus on the 100 days of wages she owes you, weighing just how heavy that is. Focus solely on the debt you've been forgiven of. Never take your eyes off of it, and you will be changed forever. Never stop being in wonder of it. Never stop being overwhelmed by it. Never stop it from making you jump and dance and sing and shout for joy. Never forget you don't deserve 
forgiveness and never will. Let this fact topple over any and every debt your wife, or anyone else for that matter, might ever owe you. How many times should you forgive your wife? Seven times? No. Jesus says in verse 22 of Matthew 18, 77 times, or 70 times 7, 490, meaning a never-ending number of times because the forgiveness shown to you is never-ending. You can either forgive your wife or you can blatantly and aggressively rebel against our holy God by not forgiving her. The choice is yours. Stop sugarcoating your rebellion. Instead of making excuses for why you can't or don't have to forgive your wife, allow yourself to fear the Lord. Imagine what could happen if you don't. Now, feel the incredible freedom that comes when you do forgive. Feel what it means to quit holding someone's sins against them, to forgive them of the dead person in their house because you have one in your house too. Feel the freedom that comes when you choose to love the other person unconditionally, the way you have been loved and freed by a holy, wrathful, yet loving and merciful God. You'll never want to go back to unforgiveness again. The lower you go, the richer you get. While Matthew 18 is only a parable, Jesus teaches the same principle in real life in Luke 7. A, quote, sinful woman has just washed his feet with her alabaster jar of perfume, and the local religious leaders are aghast. Jesus uses yet another illustration to show us both our place and to show us the path of freedom, peace, and joy. Quote, Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Luke 7, 41 to 43, 47. Sound familiar? The lower you go, the richer you get. And the higher you go, the poorer you will be. When you don't think you need very much mercy because you're so righteous already, you will never get to enjoy the abundance of mercy's riches. Your feeling that you are already in such a high place will keep you impoverished from this freeing gift. But the more you realize you need mercy because of your low position before God, the more of it you will receive. The more of it you receive, the more you have to be grateful for. The more you have to be grateful for, the more freedom, peace, and joy you will experience. The Example of Christ the example Christ sets for husbands has been overused to the point that it has often lost its punch. We often hear Ephesians 5.25 quoted, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This is followed by a message to picture Jesus hanging on the cross, the sacrifice he made, the pain he endured, and to love your wife in the same way. A man may try to take this to heart and soon find himself feeling like a beaten down ox 
told to lower its head and keep plowing. When you're tired, keep plowing. When it hurts, keep plowing. The problem with this mentality is that it's not sustainable. It doesn't work because it's powered by our works and our strength, not on grace and God's strength. It doesn't work because it starts with an empty cup, whereas God has laid out a path where our cup is already full and keeps being refilled. The trick is finding a practical way to access that cup. As we've discussed at length in this chapter, entitlement lies at the root of marital discontent. To cure this disease, we must look to Jesus as the example of one who gave up what he actually was entitled to. Jesus wasn't just a guy like us who happened to do a really good job at loving sacrificially and whom we are now supposed to model ourselves after, the way Ephesians 5.25 is typically applied. The power of Jesus' example and the irony of it is that he is the only person who has ever walked the earth who actually did deserve abundant blessing. He was the only person who actually was entitled to have everything work out the way he wanted. Philippians 2 verse 6 is very clear that Jesus is, quote, in very nature God, yet did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, unquote. Jesus was God in the flesh, yet what did he end up doing with everything God is entitled to? He gave it up for us, for our advantage, not his. He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Philippians 2, 7-8 The person who was entitled to everything rejected what was rightfully his so that those of us who are not entitled to anything could gain what we have no right to. Then we are told to love our wives like this, following the example of Jesus. Good luck doing that in your own strength. How full was Jesus's quote, love tank or love bank, while he was being beaten to a pulp and hanging on the cross, rejected by the crowds and shouldering our sins? Not full at all. Bone dry, in fact. According to some marriage experts' way of thinking, Jesus had every right to go off and have an affair, to ditch his loveless spouse, that's us, and find someone who loves him more. We tell our wives, quote, I will love you if you live up to my standards. I will love you if you meet my needs. I will love you if you speak my love language and keep my love tank full, unquote. Yet this is not how Jesus loves us, and we'd be in serious trouble if he did. Christians know why Jesus continued to hang on the cross, even though he could have snapped his fingers and been rescued by angels at a moment's notice. He hung there because of his love for us. He hung there because it was the Father's will and the only way to fix our relationship with him. But if we are to apply this to our marriages without it feeling like we're plowing like an ox, we must ask how Jesus continued to hang on the cross. Jesus didn't use his God card to strengthen himself or make the pain go away. That would have nullified the entire point of coming to earth as 100% human, experiencing what we experience. He hung from the cross, 100% human, 
completely void of the love of the people he came to save, yet completely full of the love of his Father. His task would have been impossible without this. The only way to love our wives the way Jesus loves us is to be filled with our Father's love the way Jesus was full of our Father's love. This is something we will explore together in chapter 4. Charting the Course The intention of this chapter is not to convince you to stop working on your marriage or being proactive about improving it. I'm assuming that by the time you've picked up this book, you've already tried reading marriage books, going in for counseling, and or listening to marriage sermons and seminars in an attempt to work on your marriage. For the most part, I encourage you to continue doing these things. The problem is, as guys, we define, quote, work on the same way we define, quote, fix. We are men. We like to fix things. Give us some duct tape and the problem is solved. But you've probably come to a point where you realize no matter how much duct tape you put on your marriage, the pipes are still leaking. No amount of counseling, advice, or methods you pour into your cup will do you any good if your cup has holes in the bottom of it. The aim of this book is to repair the bottomless cup, not to give advice on what needs to be put into the cup, that is, tips and tricks to improve your marriage. Marriage books, sermons, and counseling have their place, and you and your wife should use them. But I'm telling you that you may do all these things and still have a lot of marriage problems. If you attempt to fix things to bring about your desired and dreamed-of solution, it either won't materialize or won't last. You will end up frustrated. In fact, there's a good chance you're in that spot right now. My question is, once you are frustrated, what will you do next? This chapter was intentionally meant to unnerve you a little. Depending on your situation, you might feel a little defeated. Don't give up on this journey or on this book. Now that the situation has been diagrammed, the next steps we take together will show you how the war is won. And the great news is, it doesn't involve you winning it. We are going beyond the tactics of winning individual battles to living into the freedom of an already won war. When we live in this ultimate freedom, our individual battles simply drop their weapons and wave the white flag. If we have a sense of entitlement, we will do what we feel we have the right to do, ditch our spouse and look elsewhere, or at least disengage from her and seek relief. But once you learn to appreciate your wife as a genuine gift from God that you don't deserve, your stance toward her will change remarkably. You will be amazed at what authentic, gospel-level appreciation does for your heart and for your marriage as a whole. You will not absorb this truth by simply listening to this audiobook. You must spend time before the Lord and ask Him to humble you and reveal these truths to you. I highly recommend using the devotional material in Appendix B of the print book after you're finished with the audiobook. These previous two chapters are probably the heaviest on speaking directly to married men rather than to all men. In spite of the semantics, 
the underlying gospel principle for singles still resounds. In fact, it is the principle that resounds for every man, woman, and child on the planet. Single men are different from one another. Some feel entitled to get married someday, as if this is an unalienable right God is depriving them of. Some obsess over women and a future marriage like it is the one thing they can't live without. Others are fine with not being married, but have other areas where they feel like God is holding out on them. Some struggle with comparing themselves to married men, wondering why the other guy got the perfect bride while he got nothing. At the end of the day, each of us needs to realize we have been given much more than, quote, nothing in the undeserved mercy of Jesus. The mercy of Jesus is not a consolation prize, and we will find incredible freedom and joy when we learn how to live into this. Singles also need to realize the grass isn't always greener on the other side. What might look like the perfect marriage or the perfect family likely isn't. A common complaint and desire of Christian single guys is that it's not fair they don't get to have sex, so they despondently long for marriage or they rebel against God's design and have sex outside of marriage. But which of these would you prefer? To be single and not have sex or to be married and not have sex? This is a reality more married men deal with than you realize. As I said, the grass isn't always greener on the other side. The point is, everyone has struggles, whether married or single. For some, it's their marriage. For some, it's their health. And others face a wide variety of other seen or unseen trials and stressors. No one has a perfect life. This fallen world will never be perfect. But we do have the perfect grace of Jesus to both save us and sustain us, whether we are single or married.